I've had a <clears throat> number of people ask me what has prompted me to speak on this subject these last two weeks. And uh, interrupting our study in the Gospels and more particularly the Sermon on the Mount. And my response is the, the increasing political and religious advocacy for homosexuality, that is what has prompted me to speak out on this critical issue. The last month, we've had the tremendous emphasis on the Supreme Court, the cases from California, and uh, the DOMA Act passed by Congress being challenged. And there are many, many, many people, both secular and uh, religious even, advocating for this subject. And I just want to remind you, we, we talked some weeks ago out of the Sermon on the Mount and uh, on the fourth of the Beatitudes about hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And that, is part, that has also been an impetus for me to address this issue. We need to be people, as Christians particularly, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Is that a fair statement? And as Christians, we, we should be believing that all, all the matters of faith and conduct, everything that our life is about, is based on the Word of God, must be evaluated, if you will, on the basis of biblical scripture. We go to the Bible, and we say the Bible is our standard. The Bible is, pardon the expression, the manufacturer's handbook. The Bible is the basis of, upon which we make our decisions, make our choices, live our life. The Bible gives us a philosophy of life. 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul writes this, these two verses familiar to many of us. He says, all scripture is God-breathed. The point being, these are God's words. These aren't simply men's words. This isn't some philosophy some man thought up. This is the argument that people put forward. They say, well, isn't, wasn't the Bible just written by men? Yes, it was written down by men, but these are God's words. All Scripture. The New Testament is also Scripture. He says, and it is useful for teaching and rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. If I want to live my life rightly, if I want my life to make sense, if I want to live a fulfilled life, then I should live it according to the design. Not rocket science. Does that make sense? If I veer from the design, I'm only asking for trouble. I'm going to be veering off into dysfunction, disorder. God means for us to live orderly lives. Lives that are fruitful, lives that are encouraging to one another, and lives that bring him glory. 
He says that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So whatever, whatever God entrusts to our hands, that we be equipped. Well, we're equipped because we what? We read, we study, we meditate on God's word. We do not lean on our own understanding. We acknowledge him in all of our ways. There's a parallel passage in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. Peter puts it this way. He says, For prophecy never had its origin in the will of men. It's not the scriptures, the word of God is not something that men, again, thought up on their own. He says, But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This picture of, of the Spirit of God carrying men, leading men, directing men, causing men to write down his thoughts through their life. Men from every background, every life experience, how God uses those things to cause them to be instruments of his communication. Now I say all that because it's important for us to, again, this is why we spent three weeks on the sufficiency of Scripture. So we come away confident that the Bible is sufficient. I don't need man's thoughts. I don't need Freud to tell me anything. I don't need the psychologist to tell me stuff. I need what Jesus says. I need what God says. And since the Bible does speak on the issue of homosexuality, it is imperative that we correctly understand and that we correctly articulate the truth on this very important contemporary issue. There's much confusion today, much misinterpretation of the scriptures, mistranslation, bad exegesis. There's myths. And there's so much confusion out there about this subject matter today. I had a woman Friday night after the service come and she said, well, I'm concerned about equal rights. I said, everybody in this country has equal rights. The gay agenda is they want more rights. We all have equal rights. The issue for Christians is we want to see people saved from hell. That's our issue. We care. That's why you evangelize. That's why we make disciples so that people are rescued from hell. Given that, our examination of the Bible's perspective is critical. It's critical because there are writers today who are sympathetic to the homosexual community and they have put forth revisionist interpretations of relevant biblical passages that are based upon biased exegesis and mistranslation. In effect, they seek to set aside thousands of years of biblical interpretation and ethical teaching. I believe these efforts are reflective of the conditions described by Paul, again, to Timothy, when he says, for the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. We see that happening today. 
and even in the church. Now I want to note at the outset of our study this morning, this is very important, there is absolutely no affirmation of homosexuality and homosexual activity found anywhere in the scripture. I don't care what anybody else tells you. The Bible does not support that lifestyle. It doesn't support that activity. There is no affirmation whatsoever. Rather, the consistent sexual ideal in the Bible, consistent sexual ideal, is to use an old-fashioned word, chastity. Does anybody remember that word? Chastity. Chastity means to refrain from illicit sexual activity. It's chastity for those outside the monogamous heterosexual marriage. And it's faithfulness and exclusivity for those inside such a marriage. It's very simple. That's the design. But we, as human beings, tend to pervert the design and twist it to suit our own sinful attitudes. There is also abundant evidence in the scriptures, as we shall see, that homosexual behavior, along with illicit heterosexual behavior, is immoral, and it comes under the judgment of God. This is the tragedy. These things come under the judgment of God, much like everything else, and we have to warn people not coddle them and not say it's okay and not agree with them. Say, no, your soul is too important to me. Your soul is too important to me. I am forever telling people in my office when I counsel them, I care more about you than you do. I care more about your marriage than you care. I care more about your kids than you care. Anything to get people to wake up. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. I believe in the light of what the Bible teaches that the growing cultural acceptance of homosexual identity and behavior, both male and female, is symptomatic of a broader spiritual disorder that threatens the family, threatens our culture, and indeed threatens the church. Now, my intention and prayer is that we as a church will find a biblical balance between clear conviction about the sinfulness of homosexual behavior on the one hand and patient compassion to come alongside those of you who may have homosexual desires and as well your friends and family members to seek your good. I have no desire to drive homosexual people away. If you were not here last weekend, you need to listen to last weekend's message. Get the CD, go online. It was an introduction to these remarks. I have no, no intention to drive homosexual people away. On the contrary, I would like to be able to say of our congregation the very same thing that Paul said to the Corinthians. After mentioning the sexually immoral, idolaters, 
adulterers, male prostitutes, homosexual offenders, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers. He says next, and that is what some of you were. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The church is meant to be a redeeming community. A hospital, if I may say. And sometimes even an emergency room. People come here. They come here. They come here. I tell people, just keep coming. 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 I don't get it. I don't get it. Just keep coming. You'll get it. Just hang out. I think we would all like to be a church like that, Paul describes. Justified sinners battling together to walk in purity. Do I hear an amen? So with that introduction, I want to examine some of the more classic passages in the Bible and see what they say. But in so doing, there are two questions we have to keep in our mind. The first question is this. Is the Bible unambiguous? This is one of the criticisms. The criticisms by those people who would argue this would say, the Bible is ambiguous on this. I submit to you, the Bible is not ambiguous. Is the Bible consistent in its prohibitions of homosexuality? The second question, is homosexuality consistently condemned as sin? Those are are hard questions, but those are the questions we have to keep in our mind as we look through and see what does God actually say. I want to begin in Genesis chapter 19. This is the account of Sodom and Gomorrah. Many of you are probably familiar with this passage. You've got God speaking to Abraham in chapter 18. He's come down to hear and to examine Sodom and Gomorrah, and as he says in verse 20, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous. If you go back to chapter 13 and verse 13, we read this. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. The outcry, this is an outcry of evil. What is evil? What's going on in Sodom? What's going on in Gomorrah? The people who are advocating for and and pushing for the normalization of homosexuality in our culture today would argue that passage that really the outcry of evil is really the fact that the Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah people were being inhospitable. Really, inhospitable. God's gonna call fire and brimstone down on them for being inhospitable. I don't know about that. So let's look at the text. So the two 
God, the Lord brings two angels down. The two angels go to the city of Sodom, the account says. They arrived at Sodom in the evening. Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. Now remember, Lot is Abraham's nephew. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. No. He says, he insisted so strongly. Why do you suppose Lot insists so strongly they don't spend the night in the square? Most of us say, well, okay, if you want to stay the night in the square. He knows the character of the city. He insisted strongly that they come and stay under the protection of his roof. So they have a meal. Verse 4 says, Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old. Now this is really rampant. All the men, young and old, from every part of the city, surround the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Word spread quickly, obviously. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can greet them and extend hospitality to them. <laughs> no. Bring them out to us so that we can what? We can rape them. This is rampant evil that's crying out to God. All of us have at some point in our life witnessed evil, unmitigated evil, and we say, where is God? That's the cry for, for God. Jude, in the little book of Jude, verse 7, we read this, because Jude comments on this. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. Now that word perversion in the NIV translation is literally meant, is literally understood to mean going after different flesh. So in the context of sexual immorality, going after different flesh, it's unnatural whatever it means. But clearly, I think there's homosexuality implied. Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22. Do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. That is detestable. It's a very simple statement. Detestable. What's detestable mean? extremely displeasing, and especially to the Lord. Don't lie with a man as one lies with a woman. What, what, what could that mean? Don't, don't just lie down together on the beach? No, not, don't have sexual intercourse. Don't have sexual relations. In chapter 20 of Leviticus, he goes a little bit further. If a man lies with a man as one lies with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They must be put to death. This, he says, their blood will be on their own head. This is so detestable that it indeed is a capital offense in God's eyes. And if you look at chapter 20 of Leviticus, 
you'll see these absolute prohibitions uh, against sexual practices, uh, and they're all lumped together. Incest, adultery, bestiality, homosexuality, they're all lumped together, and they're all uh, grouped in, in a way that they all demand the death penalty. This is serious stuff. And yet we, in our very egalitarian culture, we just think, well, it's all, you know, everyone to his own, and we'll just, all, there's no righteousness anymore. First Timothy, chapter 1. Paul writes to Timothy. He says, we also know that law is made not for good men, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers, and perverts. Now the Greek word there, translated here in the NIV, pervert, literally means to sleep with a man as one does with a woman. The same idea. It's a homo it addresses homosexuality. In the book of Judges, in chapter 19, you have another account. And in this account, you have a Levite on his way from Bethlehem traveling back to his home uh, in Jerusalem. And he's got his wife with him. It's a long journey. He stops overnight at a town named Gibeah in the district of Benjamin. Unbeknownst to him, the Benjamites have a problem. So he meets an older man who's coming in from his field working. The older man greets him, shows him hospitality. He says, why don't you stay the night? He says, no, no, we'll stay here in the town square. He says, you better not. He says, you're welcome at my house. So he goes into his house, verse 22. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Does that sound familiar? Surrounded the house, pounding on the door. They shouted to the old man who owned the house, bring out the man who came to your house so that we can show him hospitality. No. I, I submit to you that these passages clearly do not paint homosexuality in a positive manner. These things are abhorrent. They're tragic. And they are sin. Now I want you to turn to Romans chapter 1. This is a classic passage in the New Testament. Now you're going to have to stay with me on this. Okay, follow along with me. The logic of the argument. This is very, very important. Let's just read verse 21 through verse 28 together. Paul writes, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. 
They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen? Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty of their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. Now, I want to parse that passage with you. And we're going to look at a threefold repetition of a threefold sequence of thought. So three times in these verses, we're going to see the same three thoughts, but expressed in increasing degrees. Let me just give you an overview of what that sequence of thought is. First, he's going to tell us that human beings exchange God for what God has made. Human beings exchange God for what he has made. In other words, we prefer what God has made to God himself. Now you think about that, because I want to revisit that. The second step, because we do that, God hands us over to what we prefer. That is called judgment. The implication behind that is that you and I very often will pray for what we want, not what God wants. And very often, God will give us what we want, and we are all excited. Oh, look what God blessed us with. It may not be a blessing. It may be a curse. It may be judgment. How many parents do we have? Have you ever had your kids going, I want, I want, I want, and so badger you about it, finally you give in and give it to them? You know it's not the best thing for them. But they are so insistent, so insistent, you finally say, okay, you want it, I'll give it to you, that's it. But it's really not a blessing, it's a form of judgment, isn't it? So you have to be careful what you pray for. John writes this marvelous thing in, in 1 John chapter, I think it's chapter 5 or chapter 4. He says, we know that we have what we ask for because we ask in accordance with his will. What does that mean? It means you, you need to know what God's will is. That's why we read your Bible. That's why you study your Bible. God, I want to know how you think. I want to know what you're like. If I'm going to be more like you, I, I need to read your book. So that when I talk to you, we're talking on the same wavelength. I'm not off in la-la land, and then I don't get what I want, and I get mad at you. Am I making sense here? So because we exchange God for what we want, God will give us what we want. That's judgment. And then the third step, generally speaking, is that we find ourselves acting out externally and bodily in our sexual relations. A dramatization of the internal 
spiritual condition of the fallen human soul. Namely, we live out, we act out this horrendous exchange of God for man, for the image of man, and images of what we consider significance and authority and power. Imagine some of the images you think you ought to have of yourself. What's God's desire? What's God's purpose? What image does he want formed in us more and more and more? What is it? The image of Christ. Now, do we all have that image? Do we all behold ourselves? We walk in the mirror and look in the mirror and say, oh, man, you look just like Jesus. No, we all have our agendas. We all have our issues. We all, well, this is what we think we ought to be. This is what we're trying to impress people with. We're totally, totally ignoring God. And he'll give you over to that. And you find yourself acting out in a disordered fashion. And more particularly, in our sexual relations. Now, those are the three general steps. Let's be more particular now. Let's go through the first, the first threefold sequence, verses 23 and 24. Just look at these verses once again with me. Verse 23. That they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Verse 23, what did they do? They exchanged. What did they exchange? The glory of God for what? Images. Images. Exchange the glory of God for images made to look like what? Mortal man, birds, animals, and reptiles. All these things represent what we consider power. Birds. What is the preeminent emblem of power in the United States of America? A bird. Do you see how easy it is to translate those things? We symbolize stuff. Verse 24. Because we exchange the glory of God for images, what does God do? Verse 24. He gives us over. Now what does he give us over to? He gives us over in the sinful desires of what? Our hearts. It starts in here. You have to know that we are conceived in sin. We are born sinners. We are born rebellious. And he gives us over to it, to the sinful desires of our hearts, but he doesn't stop there, to sexual impurity. You see, everything eventually gets to sex. There ain't a man in this room that doesn't constantly think about sex. Most women. Everything gets to sex at some point. Look at all of our advertising. It's all about what? Is it about suntan cream? 
No, but there's an image. Remember the old advertisements for milk? Be driving down the street and you see a billboard. Got milk? And what do you see? Some slinky, incredible woman laying out in a practically half-nude pose. Milk? Milk? It gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity. Notice verse 24, for what purpose? For the degrading of their bodies with one another. Because that's what happens. We are users. We use one another. And we degrade one another. And especially today, we degrade people sexually. How many of you women like the idea of being sexual objects? That's, that's what our culture has made you. We degrade you in this culture. You see, in response to the rejection of God's glory as our treasure, what should be our treasure? God's glory. So in response to our rejection of God's glory as our treasure, God wills there be a disordering of our bodily life in degrading deeds. He hands us over to sexual impurity for the degrading of our bodies with one another. That sexual disordering of the human race is a judgment of God for our exchanging him for the creature, all of us, all of us. Now notice the second time through those same three steps, verses 25 through 27. In verse 25, he says, They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over in the shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Now, notice something, please. Verse 25 of our passage we just read. Verse 25 parallels verse 23. What happened in verse 23? That's right. In verse 25, now notice this, please. In verse 25, the truth of God is that he is glorious. The truth of God is that he is glorious and he is to be desired above all things. The lie that we exchange for the truth of God, the lie preferred by us is that the creature or creaturely comforts is more desirable than God. 
not only do we exchange the glory of God for images, we take it a step further. We exchange the truth of God, that he is glorious. He is to be desired more than anything. We exchange that for the creature and for creaturely comforts. All you have to do is ask yourself, Do I love God more than life? Do I love God more than myself? Do I love God more than money? Do I love God more than looks? Do I love God more than food? And you go on and on and on. Do I love God more? Do I love God more? Or do I love, you fill in the blank, more than God? Because if you love something more than God, guess what he'll do? He'll give you over to it. And you'll be uncontrollable. You can't control it. You can't control it. You say, what's the matter with me? Why can't I get this thing under control? Because you love it more than you love him. No, I don't. Yes, you do. No, I don't. Yes, you do. How can you say I do? Because look at you. <laughs> I don't mean to be insulting or pejorative. I'm just trying to make my point. Verse 26 parallels verse 24. Notice, God gave them over. Again. He gives, what, what do we say about that? God gives them over. Is that a blessing? Or it's what? It's judgment. And what does he give them over to? In the NIV translation that I'm reading from, he gives them over to shameful lusts. Things that are too shameful to even describe and talk about. Shameful, it's shameful. He gives them over to shameful us. What are they? Even their women. That is a telling phrase. Even their women. Women have always been looked upon as being the last bastion of anything that's good and right and holy. If I can use that statement. It's kind of like mom and apple pie. But when the women go wholesale, the culture is shot. The culture is shot. There is no more standard for anything decent. Even the women have exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. We're seeing that more and more and more today. Women blatantly going down that path. And then the men, he goes on and talks about the men. Abandoning natural relations with women for unnatural ones and being inflamed with lust for one another, committing indecent acts with other men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. All of that 
corresponds to the latter part of verse 24. In verse 24, he says, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. So the degrading of the body that Paul has in mind in verse 24 is generally immoral sexual behavior, but specifically homosexual behavior in verses 26 and 27. The sexual disorder of the human race. Notice the phrase I just used. What was it? The sexual disorder of the human race. Is that a legitimate phrase? Are we seeing sexual disorder today? Every place. Especially homosexuality, but not only homosexuality. The sexual disorder that we see is a judgment of God for our exchanging the truth of God for a lie. You don't want me? You don't want me? You want that? Okay. I'm going to remove my hand of grace. You can have it. And what does it lead to? Absolute, utter chaos in our lives, in our culture, and even we're seeing it happening in the church. Let me take you the third time through that threefold sequence. Look at verse 28. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over, notice the third time, gives them over to now, what? A depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. Now, verse 28 corresponds to the earlier verses, 23 and 25. There, in verses 23 and 25, they exchanged the glory of God for images and the truth of God for a lie. Now, in verse 28, we don't even want to retain the knowledge of God. It's not just that we exchange it anymore. We don't even want it anymore. Has anyone noticed in the past generation, there is a tremendous, tremendous move to sanitize all of our social institutions from any mention of God? The second step, God gives them over. This time he gives them over to a depraved mind. That corresponds to verse 24. Verse 24, he gave them over to sinful desires of their hearts. It corresponds also to verse 26, where he says he gave them over to shameful lust. Now, in verse 28, he gives them over to a what? A depraved mind. This is God's response to the universal exchange of God for the creature. When I put myself first, when it's all about me, God gives me over to me. Protect me from me. And the third step in this third sequence says God gave them over to do what ought not to be done. <laughs> that corresponds to the second half of verse 24, where it says he gave them over for the degrading of their bodies with one another. But it also corresponds to the latter part of verse 26 and 27, where women and men are now pursuing homosexual relations. 
So, if I can summarize it this way, homosexual behavior is parallel to what? It's parallel with the degrading of the body, and it is parallel with doing what ought not to be done. Do you follow the logic of that argument? I think we can see that the deepest problem of our lives, whether heterosexual or homosexual, the deepest problem of our lives is this terrible exchange of the glory of God for images and the truth of God for a lie. And who's behind it all? The deceiver, the liar, who incites our sinful heart. And we bite every time. But it doesn't stop there. We've not only exchanged the truth of God for a lie and the glory of God for images, but now we don't even want any longer any knowledge of God. Look at verse 21 again with me real quickly. Although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. Our worst disorder is failed worship. Failed worship is our worst disorder. You see it in verse 21. This is the underlying cause of all of our problems. Pastor, I have a problem. Of course you have a problem. You're not dead yet. Let me tell you my problems. I don't want to hear your problems. That's not callous. That's trying to get someone to reorient their thinking. We, we need to be Christ-centered in our thinking, not problem-centered in our thinking. This is one of my biggest beefs with psychology. It's all problem-centered. It's not Christ-centered. It's not worshipful of Him. It's not acknowledging Him in all of our ways. I don't care what your problem is. Your problem becomes you have a deficit in worship. You don't honor Him as God, nor do you give thanks. Therefore, your thinking becomes futile and your foolish heart is darkened. It's simple. All we need is the scriptures. All you need is God. You don't need interminable counseling. You just need to get right with God. Isn't that what he says? We call that what? Repentance. Repent. Oh, but you don't understand. I don't need to understand. I already understand. You don't understand. <laughs> Repent. Stop it. Stop it. But I can't. Yes, you can. Oh, yes, you can. I better not go down that rabbit trail. <laughs> Restoring worship. Now, hear me. Restoring worship, not our disordered sexuality, is our main concern. 
We want to get back to worshiping. We want to get back to worshiping. When you're focused on him, he takes care of everything else. He says what? Trust in me with what? All of your heart. Love me with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. Why does he say that? Because he knows that we need him. And we pay lip service to him. He says, these people love me with their lips. They praise me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And that's true of many people who profess to be Christians because they do not understand worship. Worship is not just coming and singing songs. We come and sing these songs because we've been worshiping Him all week with our life. God, I want you, I want you honored with how I think. I want you honored with how I speak. I want you honored with how I behave. I'm going to live my life as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to you, which is my spiritual service of worship. This is getting away from me. The sexual disordering of our lives, most vividly seen in homosexuality, though not only there, is the judgment of God upon the human race because we exchanged the glory of God and the truth of God for other things. Now, sometimes people will ask this question. They say, is is AIDS the judgment of God on homosexuality? Well, what does your Bible say? The answer from Romans chapter 1 is homosexuality itself is a judgment on the human race. Why? Because we've exchanged what? The glory of God and the truth of God for a lie. Images and a lie. So it's not, I mean, everything else is a judgment too. AIDS is a judgment. Arthritis is a judgment. Old age is a judgment. Cancer is a judgment. Alzheimer's is a judgment. Every other disease, every other futility and misery in the world, including death, is a judgment on sin. All you have to do is read Romans chapter 5 and Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, we read this, that all of creation has been subjected to frustration. Has anybody noticed that life can be frustrating? And those who believe in Jesus Christ are ju- and are justified by faith, those who become genuine children of God are not taken out of this world of pain and sorrow. But we are given the grace to experience the very judgments of God on the human race. But we're given the grace that we might experience these things as the merciful pathway to holiness and heaven rather than sin and hell. Remember what Jesus said to Paul? My grace is sufficient. We're going to traverse this world. We're going to go through this world. We're going to experience all sorts of stuff. But God gives us grace so that we can honor him and trust him and depend upon him. Because that's the pathway. That's the narrow way to life. This is why we can rejoice in our trials. This is why we can rejoice in our 
sicknesses. Why? Because God uses them for our good. Thank you, Lord. Now, the reason that Paul focuses on homosexuality in Romans chapter 1 is because it is the most vivid dramatization in life of the profoundest connection between the disordering of heart worship and the disordering of our sexual lives. In other words, there is a connection, and most people don't even see this. There's a connection with our attitude towards God, our worship of Him, and how we live out that aspect of our lives sexually. The Bible teaches from beginning to end, and more particularly in the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, that manhood and womanhood existed to represent or to dramatize God's relationship to his people and then ultimately Christ's relationship to his bride, the church. We all understand that dynamic, right? And in this drama, the man represents God or Christ and is to love his wife as Christ, what? Loved the church. The woman represents God's people or the church. And the sexual union in the covenant of marriage represents the pure, undefiled, intense heart worship. See, everything in this life is a picture. It's a shadow representing much profounder things. What is the most powerful, the, the ultimate expression of intimacy between a husband and wife. What is the ultimate expression of intimacy? Sex. That's what it's meant to be. We come together spiritually. We're one spiritually as man and woman. My wife and I are Christians. We agree. We're together. We pray together. We, we follow God together. Based on that foundation, we grow together in a personal relationship. We have a spiritual relationship. We grow together in a personal relationship. That personal relationship, it's in the context there. Because of our foundation, we have trust and love developed and growing. I can say to her, I love you. She can say to me, I love you. And we know that it's real. And it's out of that foundation and then the building of the superstructure comes the physical the ultimate expression of intimacy is the sexual relationship. What's the ultimate expression of intimacy in our relationship with God? What is it? Worship. It's very simply worship. Our intimacy with God is expressed in how we worship Him. Truth be known, for most of us, God's out of sight, out of mind. We're consumed with images. We're consumed with preferring other things. Consumed with this life. Oh yeah, oh, oh, hi God. In other words, God means for the beauty of worship to be dramatized in the right ordering of our sexual lives. Not the disorder of our sexual lives.
But instead, we have exchanged the glory of God for images, especially images of ourselves. And the beauty, then, of heart worship is destroyed. We've lost sight. And so, therefore, in judgment, God decrees that this disordering of our relation to him be dramatized in the disordering of our sexual relations with one another. And since the, and since the, the right ordering of our relationship to him and heart worship is dramatized by heterosexual union in the covenant of marriage, the disordering of our relationship with God is dramatized by the breakdown of that heterosexual union. People living together, people having sex together, even Christians, no compulsion, no problem, having sex together. Don't let the pastor know. Why? Because you know it's inherently wrong. You know it's, you know it's, it's not right. You know you're ashamed of it if you're found out. So we do it in, in secret. The disordering of our relationship with God, beloved, is dramatized by the breakdown of that heterosexual union. Homosexuality is the most vivid form of that breakdown. God and man in covenant relationship are represented by male and female in covenant sexual union. So when man turns from God to images of himself, God hands us over to what we have chosen and dramatizes it by male and female turning to images of themselves for sexual union, namely their own sex. Men turn to men, women turn to women. That's the most vivid picture of God's judgment in the breakdown of our union with him. Homosexuality is the judgment of God dramatizing the exchange of the glory of God for images of ourselves. Next time, we're going to begin to discuss the current arguments and objections put forth by those who would argue for the normalization of homosexuality. What does the Bible say? Amen. Lord, have mercy on us. Have mercy on us. We repent of our foolishness. We repent of our lack of heart worship towards you. We repent of any form of exchanging your glory for images. And we repent Father, from exchanging the truth of who you are for the lie that what we prefer is more satisfying. We repent also for our nation, for our churches, for no longer even wanting your knowledge, the knowledge of you, to be uppermost. God, we are so sorry. Have mercy on us. Help us, Lord, to make that change in our own life.
that each one of us put you first, truly, like never before, that we love you with all of our heart. And because we love you, we love your church. Thank you. Amen.